All right, let me get started. I'm going to read our little intro here and we can go from there. Sound good? Yeah, great. Okay, here we go. If you're currently alive and sentient, say between the ages of three and I don't know, 103, you are familiar with the Muppets. With the television history spanning more than 60 years and counting, the Muppets are arguably the most successful and most transformative television entertainment franchise in the world of all time. From Bert and Ernie to Big Bird and Kermit, Miss Piggy, Yoda, and hundreds of other characters, the creations of Jim Henson and his Creature Shop colleagues rival really only those of Walt Disney for primacy in the space. The world that Henson wrought today encompasses television series, movies, songs, books, video games, NFTs, theme park rides, and countless merchandising licenses. It's a big story and a very big world. Now, on today's podcast, my frequent guest and friend Richard Brown and I are going to discuss only one aspect of that world, which is the seminal TV series, The Muppet Show, which ran in syndication for five seasons from 1976 to 1981. To tackle the numerous other important aspects of The Muppets, let alone Jim Henson's entire life and career and the lives and the careers of influential and essential Muppet partners like Frank Oz would really take numerous episodes. And although Muppets existed on American television going back to the late 50s, rising to prominence on the children's television series Sesame Street in 1969, Henson's repeated efforts to get the Muppets their own TV show was surprisingly unsuccessful for many years. Two failed pilots for ABC, The Muppet Valentine Show in 1974 and The Muppet Show Sex and Violence in 1975, particularly in the title of the latter, represented Henson's lifelong desire to have The Muppets not be seen as exclusively children's entertainment. A poor fit with the first season of the then new Saturday Night Live further dented Henson's hopes for TV success of The Muppets, but the colorful, self-made British media empresario, Lord Lou Grade, had been impressed by Jim and the Muppets during the production of a Julie Andrews special that Grade's ITV, ATV, UK television network had funded. And Grade pitched Henson on the idea of producing the Muppet show in England at Elstree Studios in Borehamwood for air on Grade's British TV stations and for syndication in the US and the rest of the world. Henson wasn't sure because syndication at the time was really not a surefire means to US TV success, but Muppet Show fortunes were aided by a change in US broadcasting laws, which meant local affiliates, not their corporate network owners, now controlled the 7.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. time slot. And Grade's efforts targeted this new TV real estate, and the Muppets first conquered the UK, becoming an instant smash success in the first season, and then in subsequent seasons, the US and the rest of the world, with eventually over 100 countries taking the series. Richard, welcome back to Full Cast and Crew and our episode on The Muppet Show. Certainly a part of my childhood, how about yours? Well, we'll go deeply into, you know, comparing this show as far as your childhood instincts versus your adult instincts. But right now, I just wish I had a signature entrance sound effect like Gonzo's famous whoosh. Well, as I said, the origin story was new to me. I did not know any of this. I just presumed in my dumb American way. Eh, the Muppet Show was produced in America. Did you, did you know this English background history? Prior to looking into this a couple of weeks ago, I had never known that this was being 
made in England by English TV company. It's funny too, because, you know, when you're watching a TV show, a variety show like this, you, it might get sort of locked into your head that, you know, there's a, a GPS or a compass in your head that you're watching something that's being made in Hollywood or watching something that's be, being made in New York. And in re-watching these old episodes, I, I did this shift where everything in my head is going on in England and, <laughs> and imagining these all these guest stars being flown over there. It was like, it was really like uh, relearning this show in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated. I had that exact same thing all of a sudden as I'm watching the Muppet Show now, and like you, I probably watched many of the, I don't know, hundred plus episodes over the five seasons. It does change my perception and appreciation for the series to know that it was made at Elstree Studios at Borumwood. You know, there's a history, there's a legacy there. There is, as we've come to know on the pod, there's a big, big difference in UK production crews of the time versus US production crews. There's a lot of funny anecdotes in some of the books about the making of the Muppet Show where there is a hard rule you do not violate several important rules with British crews. One, there is tea time. And sometimes some of the crew would come back after having, quote, a couple shandies. <laughs> and some of the Americans had to get used to that. And then also the lights went out in the studio at eight o'clock. Doesn't matter what you're doing. The lights are going to be turned off at eight o'clock and people are going home. Now you could negotiate, I guess, five minute increments. That was as much as you could do. Like many things we'll hear about Jim Henson, I think that probably was a good guardrail for him because left to his own devices, it sounded like he probably would have had everyone work 20 to 22 to 24 hours a day because that's pretty much what he was doing. But it was news to me. I didn't know this whole history of it, which was kind of fascinating about early syndication and and the difficulty that he had getting these pilots off the ground at ABC. But I think you watched a couple of those pilots like I did, and they are strange and kind of jarring to watch today. Yeah, you remember that in the um, in the first pilot, which I think is 74, that's the Valentine's Day, Muppets Valentine's Day special for ABC. The show is produced with a human puppet uh, named Wally, who's the screenwriter of the show that they're making. And he is sort of in the Kermit role. And he's creating the show at a typewriter while it's also happening at the same time behind him. <laughs> kind of an interesting concept, except that they did the whole show with no laugh track. And you like to think of yourself as some, you know, intellectual erudite person who doesn't need a laugh track to know when to laugh. But it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, the laugh track is, a, is an interesting thing. And I think more so in any other show we've done, I both noticed it in The Muppet Show. I was glad for it and I lamented it at the same time because there are tantalizingly at least a couple episodes and I believe season two where there is no laugh track added or if it is, it is augmenting clearly an attempt to try on set laughter from cast and crew, which is interesting and so much of the Muppets magic is in the interaction of the Muppets themselves and the performers and the guest stars that you would think I mean, it's clear it's probably impossible to have produced it live in front of a studio audience. I think that's clear for so many reasons. But in a weird way, the laugh track that they inserted works, even as, like you, I think I have a reflexive kind of like dismissive attitude towards shows that use laugh tracks. 
But this show kind of made me understand the need for them. And you're right, the, the jarring lack of them in those first two specials is weird. And I think you're also right that the, the both of those specials to me lack a cohesive narrative concept that allowed something to coalesce. But it's really fascinating that really just a year later, they would stumble upon or have maybe more to the point forced upon them a structure that ended up working. So the Saturday yeah. Night Live stuff, the sex and violence stuff, like never really worked. You could see the 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 kernel in there. You could see the show inching toward what's going to be a really successful format. And in particular, what I'm talking about is this idea of doing the show as a a faux theater performance in a faux theater, and then the parallel stories going on behind the scenes mm -hmm. whereas in the initial pilot show it was there were we were cutting away between kind of a behind the scenes and a and packaged musical numbers and that that sort of thing but in the behind the scenes we never knew where we were it, it was a they were it was like some kind of house or something where all these monsters and um and and talking animals lived and for some reason mia farrow lived next door it just didn't have any cohesion to it like you said it's funny you know henson's background pre-muppet show which also was much more extensive than i was kind of aware of i think like everyone i'm vaguely aware not vaguely aware i'm very aware of the sesame street characters and how iconic those are and one of the many just amazing and and shocking aspects of Jim Henson's personal career and success is you could take any one thing that he did throughout his career. And for most creative people, that would be enough. That would be a legacy. Like if you did nothing else, but I don't know, come up with Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, that's a career. Like not only is that a career, that's a billion dollar merchandising empire, which by the way, Henson graciously gave to Sesame Street uh, after the fact. But that he went on and did this many, many times and, and with as many failures as successes, but to have serial success a couple of times, a few times, to do the things well that he did well is pretty impressive. I also was struck going back to his history, going back to things like the Jimmy Dean show, which I guess is like 1959 or something. You know, a lot of Henson's early stuff from Jimmy Dean show to the advertising work and the corporate work, which I was also kind of only vaguely aware of, but really working with a lot of corporate clients, which, which Muppet Industries did all through his life. But in all of that work, you know, he's fitting into someone else's definition of a narrative structure. And I wonder if when it came time to realize his vision for The Muppet Show, he just hadn't really had to create something from the ground up in that way. And as you say, once we get into talking about season one a little bit, it can feel a little hackneyed or a little constricting or a little kind of by the book in the show within a show format and how they kind of went about it in that first season. But it's interesting that he didn't necessarily have a great flair for wholly original organizing principles, I would say. Not that that's a flaw, because The Muppet Show, I think, over the course of the five seasons finds its finds itself, finds its grounding. But I think you could also say it also always had a bit of a problem with the framing device. Like they're still tinkering with it in season five. So that's interesting too. Yeah. Although we should also say by the time we get to season five, I always talk about when I talk about old TV shows, I always say the worst, the worst seasons of a long running TV show are always the first season and the last. Um, <laughs> 
because the writers, you know, if it's a long running show, the writers tend to drift away. They get hired away, stuff like that. And uh, in this particular case, this fifth season of The Muppet Show, they were taking it off the air voluntarily because Henson wanted to go into uh, the movie business. Uh, and they really did go out on top as far as the popularity of the show. And uh, I feel the fifth season is... To me, it's the strongest season uh, of the of the five years, and I think that's a good way to go. I would agree, and I, I think they, when you read about the work ethic that this entire team had to produce these shows in England uh, at the time, I mean, to even have gotten through five seasons is frankly an incredible accomplishment, and a lot of people sacrificed a lot of their lives for I don't know something like ten months of the year in order to do that, in order to film you know, 26 episodes a season or however many they did. Yeah, because it goes back to what you said at the beginning, which is you have all these American uh, artists and creative people who are going to work, you know, either either they're moving away from their families or are bringing their families to England for a significant amount of the year for five years. Yeah, and so the, the Lord Lou Grade, who's, who's probably worthy of his own episode, and I encourage people to to just look up his Wikipedia page and read his life story. It's, it's astounding. I mean, this is a person who was born, I believe in Russia in 1912 and completely uh, invented himself as this very powerful, very successful British media impresario, colorful, cigar smoking. There's some amazing photos of him in his prime. And there's someone who worked for him who had worked, as I said, who had, I think that ATV or ITV, these Lord Grade entities had funded a couple specials and Lord Grade noticed this thing about Jim Henson and just thought, hey, I can make this work. And I think the original budget was $125,000 an episode for season one, which is pretty good for the time. Yeah, it's uh, 1976. But I'm sure that they spent all of that and more. Uh, but being able to do this in the UK, being able to do this properly on the sort of sound stages that were available to The Muppet Show, you can watch over the course of these seasons as things really uh, come together and coalesce around the construction of sets and the integration of guests and the characters and the personalities uh, of the Muppets themselves. So let's talk a little bit about the production team and the Muppeteers themselves, because one of the joys of doing the research for this for me was really learning how vitally important so many people were beyond Jim Henson and, of course, that's not to take anything away from Jim Henson, who every single person will tell you who was involved in the production of any Muppet production. It's always him at the beating heart, at the center, at the soul of what they're doing. But there are many people who are equally as important, I would argue, as Jim Henson. So I guess our core group of Muppeteers is the place to start. You have Jim Henson, obviously. I wonder if people are familiar with who does what Muppet characters out of these people that I'll mention? Jim Henson, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Dave Goals or Gels. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. G-O-E-L-Z. Let's just agree how we're going to pronounce it. Let's just call him Dave. Jerry Nelson, <laughs> Dave, Richard Hunt, uh, and then people like Louise Gold and Fran Brill later, a couple of female Muppeteers. But really that core group of four people. I think five. Five, five yeah. people with Richard Hunt is yeah. really responsible for every character that you see mm -hmm. uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the screen in The Muppet Show. And I would say, I guess Louise Gold is, uh, is, we have to add Richard Hunt and Louise Gold because she's sort of the only real 
one of the few female performers at the time over the course of those, although there's a lot of women involved in the Muppet Show, and I want to have a separate conversation about that because I thought they get a little short shrift in some of the materials. But Right, and let's just say that while you were watching this in the late 70s, this same group of people, these five puppeteer guys, are also doing the majority of the puppet work that we were watching on Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah, so they would film, I think, half of a season's worth of episodes, have a break of some manner of weeks, not a long time, return back to New York, uh, where the main base of the Henson production unit was located, do the Sesame Street stuff that needed to be done, fly back to England, complete the other half of the season, fly back to New York, jump back into Sesame Street and other projects, because pretty much after season one, you're also starting to have Henson at all be involved with things like what would become the Muppet movie and uh, other variations. So those five, six people performing so many of these characters is I I was really struck by how singular a showbiz accomplishment this is. I, I can't think of anything else that's almost as impressive as this to me. Absolutely. And, you know, these characters, whether they be, uh, like I said, the characters that we grew up on Sesame Street or all the characters that we uh, came to love on The Muppet Show, um, they're just so embedded in our culture to this day. I just saw a TV commercial. I don't remember what the product was, but it was something with animal, mm -hmm. you know, selling uh, <clears throat> selling cars or something mm -hmm. like that. And everybody knows who it is. Yeah, it's amazing. And like many things centered around a famous personage, whether it's, you know, Walt Disney or Jim Henson or George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, when you get into it, you realize that there is always like there's the there's the Richard Hunt and the Jerry Nelson and the Dave Gells get people and Frank Oz, clearly. I mean, Frank Oz to me is as titanic a creative figure as Jim Henson. Uh, I think I could make a really good argument that Frank Ho Frank Oz himself as one person is equally as responsible for the Muppet universe as Jim Henson is, although he would not say that and does not say that. He is always, including up to a couple of years ago, there's a, a film that he made called, what's it called? Muppet Men Talking or uh, just Muppet Men. It's a roundtable discussion between himself, Jerry Nelson, it must not be Jerry Nelson because I don't think it was made in 2012. Actually, it's a little weird because it was released in 2017, oh, right. but they had Jerry Nelson who died as in 2012. Of, who dies in 12. So for some reason, okay. it took them. It took five years to get hmm. to get the thing put out. I'm not sure what that was all about. I'm not sure what that's all about either. But it's yeah. it's it's Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Fran Brill, Dave Goals, and a new guy who I'm giving short shrift to, but he's, he, he does contemporary Sesame street characters that I'm not really familiar with, but the real fascinating part for anyone who grew up with this stuff is going to be those four people talking. And, but of course, you know, if you're, if you're a Muppet head, uh, all of a sudden, you know, people like Jerry Nelson and his ability to sing, I mean, he's an incredible singer. And many of the characters that do some of the, the, the best musical numbers, are voiced by Jerry Nelson. And you have someone like Richard Hunt, who's among whose characters were Scooter, Beaker, Janice. He did Statler to Jim Henson's Waldorf. 
they they all say like it, it was incredibly difficult to find people who could do this. There is no training ground for it. And it sounded very much like one of those things where if they kind of recognized something in someone, they sort of went well out of their way to bring that person into the universe and try to train them up in this weird thing that they had invented, which is not really straight puppetry. There's a great anecdote in the Henson book, uh, Henson bio, I guess it's the, it's probably the, I guess it's the currently the most authoritative Jim Henson biography feels very official. So I'm not sure if there's a more complete story out there waiting to be told, but there's a great story that I think during a downtime the the this team, Henson, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Dave Gulls at all, they would all go to like a puppet festival, right? They'd be invited to these things. And these guys would watch other types of puppet stuff and just be blown away and be like little kids like, oh my God, how did they do that? Like they had no idea about general puppetry in a certain sense. <laughs> yeah. They were doing something so specific to them that they really, they didn't come out of like, you know, art puppetry, let's say, which is right. interesting because if you look at puppetry festivals now and, and you know, it's very art heavy, I would say, right? It's not, the focus is not really on general entertainment the way that Jim Henson's bent was. Yeah, because what you're talking about is puppets for TV as opposed to, you know, puppets, you know, hiding behind a half stage mm. in a theater somewhere. And then you've got your puppeteers who are having to learn the skill of watching the work that they're doing in a monitor that's down below them. Mm-hmm. And everything is backwards because <laughs> uh, they're, what their hand is doing is the opposite direction of what they're watching on the monitor. And in a lot of cases, they're singing and acting into a microphone at the same time. <laughs> it's incredible. Really. The other thing I'll add to what you're saying about the talents of these, these uh, puppeteers is if you were to see, if you saw any of these guys uh, <laughs> on a TV show, you'd be like, what, you know, what is this, this, uh, bearded puppet nerd doing on my set. Uh, but what these guys had was pure talent as far as um, uh, improvis- improvisation, um, singing ability, uh, acting. Um, these were not, these were, these guys were not made, these did not have faces that were made for TV, but they had all the talents that they needed in order to create this into, into this, create a great uh, entertaining medium. Yeah, and and you also have people like Dave Gulls, who is basically an engineer for Hewlett Packard in Southern California, like who had a you know an interest in puppetry in his basement basically, and through just a bizarre convoluted series of events, he ends up getting introduced to I think either Jerry Nelson and and Frank Oz or Jerry Nelson and Jim Henson, and he's one of those people that they're kind of like hey you should come join us here you they they recognize this thing in him. Um, and Dave Gulls, by the way, is Gonzo and Bunsen Honeydew, among many, many others. Um, and a fascinating guy who doesn't come from this world. He looks like an engineer. He looks like a guy with a pocket protector who, you know, thinks engineer and physics jokes are funny. Uh, but this, this group of six, six core people on The Muppet Show, I can't think of another ensemble that had that was together over five seasons uh and was as involved in the creation i mean we could say like okay you have a cast of taxi that's on for four or five seasons right or any any beloved tv series or sitcom 
many of which are not lucky enough to stay together that long, but let's say like they do, Seinfeld, like the iconic shows, right? But not all of those people are always intricately involved in the creation of the thing as well as the performing of the thing. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but it really struck me in reading about sort of the the way that they would perform this show on a weekly basis. And it was really important for the for the puppeteers to be performing the voice the voices and the talking and the singing at the puppet at the same time that you were watching the puppet. This is sort of not the way TV you would expect TV to be made. I mean, mm. anybody can go, you think, oh, anybody can go out there and stick their hand up the butt of, uh, you know, this piece of foam and then we'll just dub everything in later. Mm. Uh, but that was not what they were going for here. What they really wanted was something that was being created and performed by the puppet people um, who were creating and acting those characters at the same time that was happening in front of, a uh, of the camera. There's a great anecdote from one of the key directors of The Muppet Show who said in the early going in season one, you know, they would be shooting something and they would have to call cut and he would talk to Jim about something that he needed to switch or wanted to change around and uh, Kermit would answer. And the director, the direct quote is, eventually you just start talking to Kermit because it's easier. <laughs> and and there's many many anecdotes from guests and people who this is what the performers would do the chatter at after cut is as much the muppets continuing to chatter and have conversations of the sort actors would have between takes as it is the performers themselves oh, 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 oh somebody get a ladder ah, break Oh, Kermit. No, I'm Scooter. Yeah, Kermit's the green one. I know. And I was just so fascinated by this director very seriously saying this. He's not joking that eventually he would just talk to Kermit uh, because that was quicker and easier and more direct. And that's how real I think these characters were, certainly to these performers. That's another thing. I mean, it's hard not to get kind of meta metaphysical and crazy about the synthesis between performer and Muppet, mm -hmm. but you have to in this case, because to me, so much of the magic of this series is about that mysterious, alchemical, unknowable thing. The marriage right. of the performer and the puppet, the voice performance, the acting, the physical acting. I was, I've never, I, I'm so blown away once you're sort of, we, we're, we've done shows that are sitcoms. We've done shows that revolve around the quick one-liner and the reaction shot performed by live actual human beings. And we understand the mechanics of the cuts that are used to indicate that. We've talked in our taxi episode about uh, the director talking about using four cameras because comedy is about reaction. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily about the joke itself. It's about the reaction to the joke and the four cameras and the large cast and the strange set that they were in in Taxi allowed him to capture more reactions. I had that in my mind when I was watching so much of the performance of the comedy of The Muppet Show because it's uncanny and amazing how they are able to capture comedic reactions to jokes through the manipulation and often the nonverbal manipulation of the Muppets. Yeah. And sometimes the, you know, the puppet might be fashioned with eyes or eyebrows that move or something like that. But there's there's something that's 
that you can't quite describe about the way the in small movements of the of the head or whatever that will convey an emotion or a reaction um and i guess it really does take a skill to pull that off the other thing i'll i'll say here is when you go back and watch these shows there's a ton of ad-libbing going on particularly anything where it's a frank oz character and a jim henson character they're a comedy team working under those puppets and a lot of times they're working off the top of their dome true and there's a lot of anecdotes of them just cracking each other up i guess they would do promos each week and they kind of just ad-libbed the promos yeah i just wanted to go through the performers and some of their key characters so that people can identify them obviously jim henson on the muppet show is kermit the frog ralph the dog uh dr teeth Guy Smiley, the newscaster character, the Swedish chef, Waldorf, uh, a bunch of other characters. But those are really day-to-day, episode-to-episode, series-to-series, the Jim Henson key characters. Frank Oz is Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Sam the Eagle, and some others. George the Janitor, I guess, is a later character uh, in later seasons mm-hmm. of, the Muppet, of The Muppet Show. Uh, but that's Frank Oz, whose importance also stretches far beyond those key, those key characters. Um, he's a titanic talent. Uh, Jerry Nelson, Floyd Pepper, Robin the Frog, Robin the Frog. Robin is oh. like the sort of the the like Junior Kermit, right? Yeah, I thought him and Scooter were the same guy. No, okay, no, that's a no, not this. No, I meant I thought it was the same voice. No, that was okay. Jerry Nelson. Uh, and Jerry Nelson also did, you know, a lot of the the characters that needed to sing was Jerry Nelson. Uh-huh. So, man, just hard to put into words once you start looking into how they did what they did. Not only the physical difficulty of standing with your right arm up in the air 12 to 14 hours a day. Uh-huh. But as you said, even with Kermit, who doesn't have a movable face other than a mouth, Henson will do this. He's able to use his fingers inside Kermit's head to indicate confusion, disgust, happiness, every human emotion. And and there is no moving part. It's not a complicated puppet that has moving eyebrows and, you know, whiskers or anything like that. It's incredible how he's able to convey emotion. And this is the metaphysical part. When you start thinking about Kermit and his position in the Muppet universe of the Muppet show, And you start to consider how otherworldly important he is. I start to, it's for me, starts to become like contemplating the mysteries of the universe. Why does it work? Why is it this character? Because as you can see in some of those other failed pilots, Kermit was not at the center and they didn't work. Now that's not the only reason they didn't work, but it's a big part of it. And why does, why is Kermit being at the center of the Muppet show? provide something that the Muppet Show needed? Do you know the answer to that? Because I'm not sure I do. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with something we've talked about before in regard to these big cast um, um, sitcoms, which is he is the master of the chaos. So he's He's, the Alex Rieger? He's the Alex Rieger or the- uh, Andy Travis? The Andy Travis character. You know, he's the he's the guy in the center of the chaos who is trying to keep everything organized and keep the keep the show moving while the while the sets are falling down. He's the straight man, too, as far as 
the you know the comedy is concerned because none of these characters could um could organize could organize a show on their own okay i understand that and you're 100 right but separating the personality of the character from those things any other character could perform the role you just mentioned you could put ralph or miss piggy or anyone really in that role you just described but there is something about it being kermit i wanted to talk about the personality of kermit because i think that's the that's the magic to me what is that personality magic where all the other characters interact with each other through Kermit. And Kermit is a singular creation in the history of entertainment. Like I put Kermit up there with like a Yoda, you know, with having a connection to people that is profound and real. It's not just like, oh yeah, Kermit's cool. Like it's, it goes beyond that to me. I mean, maybe it doesn't for you, but to me, I think Kermit is, a fascinating personality and it's interesting to wonder what are the aspects of his personality that allow him to perform those roles you mentioned so well i don't know exactly either um i think a lot of it at least for this show is that he is not only the the master of ceremonies for the the show that's going on on the imaginary stage he's also the organizer of what's how the show is being put together backstage. And he's also has a running commentary going on with the audience about the madness that's that's going on around him. And that's a lot of his charm too, is that he has a, he's a, he's a lovable and loving character who also can be very cynical. And, and I think part of the answer is that he's neurotic. Uh, yeah, they're all neurotic. They are all beset by insecurity, doubt, ambition, ego, to varying degrees. They are a tortured bunch for ostensibly a family entertainment production. You know, when Kermit sings, it ain't easy being green, it is profound and it's moving. It's soulful. It's connecting to something that's universal in all of us. It's not easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves When I think it might be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that It's not easy being green seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things and people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky but green's the color of spring and green can be cool and friendly like and green can be big like a mountain or important like a river or tall like a tree 
And I think Jim Henson's genius was the ability to, like many performers do, any performer finds something in the character they're doing that expresses a part of themselves that maybe they're not comfortable expressing in everyday life. And Jim was always very, very clear to tell people, you know, I'm not Kermit, Kermit is not me. As much as other people would tell you, there's a lot about Kermit that was representative of Jim Henson. But man, when you start thinking about like, how Kermit's personality is displayed in the show and all the different things that he does. I guess it's like trying to explain why a movie star is a movie star. And that's going to come up again as we talk about people like Miss Piggy, because within the construct of the show, Muppet characters became superstars, just like they do in real life, which is so also strange and bizarre. Right. But you know what else I'll add to this is that from the from the beginning of the show, from the first season of the show through the end of the show, you can argue that Kermit is a pretty consistent character. The show goes through um, ups and downs and growth. And definitely there are other characters that evolve over time as the creators and performers of those characters get more familiar and more comfortable with who they are. But Kermit's a pretty stationary figure through the whole show as opposed to Piggy or Fozzie or Gonzo. Yeah, I mean, I think Kermit was pretty fully blown and developed, whereas, you know, Miss Piggy, you can trace her origin. She was not at all like the way she came to be when she became successful. And that was something Frank Oz talks a lot about, trying to find these characters. They all had to go through that process to find the center of a character. With Miss Piggy, it famously was just one karate punch that she, I believe, gave to Kermit and then got such a reaction and Frank Oz said, oh, that's that's the character. There's this like repressed anger inside of her and he built up a whole backstory. Right, and also with that, that I think it was originally intended that it was gonna be some kind of slap and right. that Oz thought that it, that, I don't know if he thought maybe it was too violent and needed to be funnier. Well, one man's poison is another man's bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I also read one of the puppeteers saying, you know, the thing with Kermit is all the other characters have to interact with him. They don't necessarily always have to interact with each other. And when you start kind of plotting out the mechanics of an episode and the mechanics of who talks to whom and who has chemistry with whom, uh, Kermit is the one character that really all the characters have to interact with. And I think that allows Kermit to be more fully realized because as other types of Muppet characters bring Kermit their insecurities, their neuroses, it it both kind of triggers something in Kermit or activates something or allows him to show a different side of his personality in that way. But it's amazing to me, and it's kind of one of the essential takeaways for me, is when you look at Kermit, he's so simple He's almost the most simple of all of them in terms of the design of the puppet itself. No, no other character has as less going on than Kermit does physically, right? Yeah. And yet <laughs> he is by far the most complex and essential soulful character in the universe. Yeah. And it's a fascinating thing to me that I just can't stop thinking about this synthesis between performer and and character and how they're able to do that.
Well, you know, another interesting factor of the show that just on a practical level, that a lot of scenes had to be designed around which which actors underneath were available to act with the puppets above. So you don't see a lot of scenes with Fozzie and Piggy together because Frank Oz has to be both of those people. Right, or right. Rolf the dog and uh, Kermit, Kermit yeah. don't have a lot of scenes together because they have to, They Jim Henson would have to be both of those people. And again, from a modern producing a TV show idea, mm. you would never... It would never occur to you to be like, oh, we can't do that scene because the puppeteer can't hold and act both puppets at once. You just have somebody else do the second puppet. And then in post-production, you'd go back and you'd, you know, you'd overdub it or whatever. I mean, yeah. the, the, these aren't problems that are hard to fix from a production level, but because Henson et al. were so locked into a particular way that they wanted this show to be performed it was just an impracticality to have certain puppets in the same scene together you're totally I think, right i think it's interesting it's fascinating because yeah. you know you could envision uh somebody along the way being like well no no we got to have ralph and kermit together those are two great amazing characters like they got to be able to vibe off each other just have somebody else do it but yeah. to their credit i think their attitude was always like you know that'd be like telling an actor well just Judd Hirsch, just play Elaine. Like, you know, like they, they took it that 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 would be that type of suggestion. Yeah. You know, it's just not even something that ever even happened once other than in something like the open as it evolved, where you do have to see all the characters on the screen at the same time. Right. And it's a group production number. But yeah. Any kind of character business, any kind of dialogue that it just never happened. So there's a fascinating like adherence to that. You're right. Yeah. And it for, and for some reason, it just kept it organic. It did. Yeah. Do you want to run through any Muppets and kind of uh, give us your, your thoughts or do you want to just let them come up organically? What do you think is the best way to go through? Well, I got a couple things to say um, about the Muppets themselves. We did mention Miss Piggy and her sort of evolution. If you go back and you watch one of these, um, one of the original, she actually shows up in the second pilot mm -hmm. uh, very briefly. And she is, has a, like a little girl's voice or something like that. Mm -hmm. She doesn't, not a named character. At that point, the character was named uh, Miss Piggy Lee mm -hmm. uh, after Peggy Lee. Uh, and then when we get to the actual Muppet show for most of the first season, she is, She's a bit of a background player. In fact, there are there are episodes of the first season where she's voiced by two different people. Right. Um, which was really jarring to run into going back and watching the first season where uh, Piggy was in those um, at the dance. Yes. Uh, that recurring, um, uh, recurring sketch. Yeah. And she has a completely different. She has like a, a like a very deep voice. Mm -hmm. uh, that was weird. Uh it's not totally clear to me, even going back and watching this again, about at what what point Piggy actually became the breakout star of the show. She became the, you know, the Fonzie of the show or whatever. <laughs> she was not from the beginning. She was not intended to necessarily be the the size of star that she became. But somebody was very wise about marketing this character outside of the show and sending Frank Oz off onto variety shows and interviews and almost on a daily basis to to be going out and promoting that character. And she ended up being such an icon used used in so many things 
beyond the Muppet show. Uh, and to the point that I don't know if you caught this, but it's around the fourth or fifth season that uh, dressing room that's on the upper right of your TV screen. That's right. Miss Piggy's dressing room. Yeah. But it's not at the beginning. It's only toward the <laughs> end of the show. Well, I, I want to push back a little bit on the notion that it's sort of a a, a marketing or a, a business push or a public relations push, which created the star, because part of the most fascinating thing of this story to me is that just like anyone becomes a star, there is no moment that it happened. It just happened. She just became a star. Like <laughs> it's, it's like any actor being in any movie and it's like Brad Pitt being in Thelma and Louise. And everyone through exposure to this combination of looks, charisma, attitude, and talent goes, whoa, who the fuck is that? And that's just what happened here, which is, <laughs> which is amazing because within the construct of the show, here are these core characters. Some of them have been around for a long time, like Ralph and Kermit in various iterations. Others created for the show, like the band or animal or things of that nature, Miss Piggy, as you said. But she became a star like it just it, it just happened and i think the things that you're talking about which happened are reactions to her stardom which caught all of them by surprise too it's like how do you describe lightning it just happened you know this character struck a nerve and frank oz is such an incredible performer it's not even it's not just acting it's it's something wholly else um in the same way that Jim Henson and his ability to do Kermit is transcendent, Frank Oz, I would argue, let's not forget, like, okay, Jim Henson as a performer, his greatest character is Kermit the Frog, right? He has all these other really funny, important characters, but Rolf, whether it's uh, Dr. Teeth, Guy Smiley, the Swedish chef, Waldorf. Okay, all supporting uh, characters who have varying degrees of importance. And if you look at Jim Henson beyond The Muppet Show, you can say, okay, Ernie, you know, part of Bird and Ernie. Uh, that's obviously foundationally important as well. But to me, when you talk about Frank Oz, to do Miss Piggy, and Yoda <laughs> in one person. Uh-huh. I'm going to say I I am not sure there are f there are more impressive accomplishments in the world of entertainment. Now, that's then then let's add to that Fozzie Bear, Cookie Monster, Grover, Bert, Animal, right? Like it it becomes something that you have to step back and say, "Holy shit. This guy is otherworldly yeah it's the kind of thing that kind of uh amazement that i might apply to an actor like i don't know peter sellers but uh we'll get to that <laughs> exactly i mean it is and that and that also sets aside that he had an entire career as a film director uh and made one of my favorite films dirty rotten scoundrels but yeah so he's a phenomenally talented person and also if you watch that muppet men documentary that bizarrely must have been filmed in 2012 but didn't come out until a few years ago what did you think of his personality as displayed in that well 
I guess I don't want to know Frank Oz. I mean, I'm sure he's a he's probably a sweet guy. I kind of I feel like like any exposure to these these puppeteers as real people it kind of shatters the illusion a bit for me again i'm not commenting on their character i'm just saying that they they come off a little awkward and funny when they're awkward and um not funny i should say when they're being themselves i i found him uh, so i watched that first before i read the jim henson bio and the of muppets and men book which i think you got from the library and i i purchased from ebay which is out of print which is a yeah. period uh, an up close and present period picture book of how they made the original Muppet show across, I think all the seasons, it must've come out in the last season. Cause I think it has seasons one through five illustrated throughout, but anyway, you know, there's a lot of information in both of those books that Frank Oz was a gracious and, um, welcoming presence and performer, but he was moody, all directed towards himself. Any negativity was sort of all just about his pursuit of what he thought he could do with these characters. And if he fell short of that, he fell into funks and he was unhappy and he was vocal about challenging things that he didn't think were working. And he would say, even in season five, let's discuss the uh, entry scene. I, I don't think these are working. And there'd be kind of an uncomfortable silence as there would be in any writer's room meeting where someone is kind of just saying flat out i don't think that's working that this is the this this was the fifth season cold opens where pops the doorman uh greets the guests as they're coming into the theater correct but he also okay. said the same thing really throughout all the seasons like I don't, you know if he didn't think that the, the the entry devices were always kind of hard for them in one one way or another but my point is when i watched him in the uh, muppet men talking self-distributed documentary there, you, I think I could feel a little of that edginess, a little of that internal conflict that uh, I think drives a lot of his best characters. You know, again, the neuroses present in all of these characters, Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Cookie Monster, Grover, Bert, Animal, uh, you know, these are all aspects of the guy himself. And it's kind of fascinating to think about where that kind of came out, whereas Jim Henson is kind of more of a, he's a very strong presence, but he's also a very benign presence in some ways. He's someone who avoided conflict. He would not, if he didn't like that opening that you wrote, his version of that would not be as Frank Oz's version was to say, I don't think that works. His version of that would say, would say tell me about that opening. I wonder could we, <laughs> you know, he'd come around it. Um, and I think that was inspirational to people and frustrating to people. And I think Frank Oz in a similar way pushed a lot of this creative stuff into places that it may not have gone with just Henson's personality. Uh, and I think that there's a, there is a bond between those two that is like a Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir like bond. Cause it goes back to their teenage years mm -hmm. and I never read of any conflict between those two throughout all the complicated business of the Muppets and Sesame Street and the movies. I, I never read one word in any of these materials that they had any problems with each other or really that anyone within this universe, uh, there were no dramatic departures, firings, exits. I didn't really read about that. Uh, granted, you know, maybe we don't have the warts and all 
story, but the way they worked as a troop, I think is such an important part of why these five seasons so particularly worked. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I think if you, if you look at the sort of the, the yin and yang of the Henson personality and Frank Oz personality, it all kind of adds up to why this show works. Um, you know, when you put those two together and you could see that their, their approaches, uh, if it had been one of them, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been the same thing, but the now, two of them together make it perfect. Who are the Muppets when they appear throughout the episodes that make you happiest to see? Okay. What I want to make sure I cannot get out of this podcast without, without the opportunity to talk about Gonzo. (laughs) I love Gonzo so much. I have the same thing, Rick. When I was, when I was a kid, Jason, watching this show, Gonzo was just another kind of funny character. Um, And I didn't really understand. I didn't Mm -hmm. understand from, you know, from a perspective of, I don't know, an eight or nine year old, necessarily why Gonzo was, I didn't see him as brilliant. I just saw him as part of the cast. Mm-hmm. And he always kind of felt like somebody, I don't know what to say. I think he felt like, well, he's not from Sesame Street, so I don't like him as much. In any case, as an adult and going back and getting to watch this show <laughs> and seeing Gonzo, not only what gonzo how how gonzo was conceived but what he became through the length of this show i can barely wrap my head around how conceptual gonzo is <laughs> i totally agree you know he's he, so fascinating he is he is fascinating he is i i think he's kind of I guess he's kind of bipolar, you know, at some points he's kind of depressive and at some points he's, he's overexcited. Uh, but his, his need for, uh, an audience and for validation is Mm -hmm. not the same as Fozzie. I mean, I like Fozzie too, but Fozzie is kind of, is really insecure in a way that's different than Gonzo's insecurity because Gonzo doesn't necessarily care about he doesn't care about whether or not people like him. All he cares about is whether or not what he's doing is funny or interesting or amazing. That's what he wants to amaze people. Mm-hmm. And he's a miserable failure at it, and he, but it doesn't, it doesn't give up. They're going to put me in the movies. They're going to make a big star out of me. You're supposed to do just what I do. But you do ludicrous things. I do what? Ludicrous things. Of course I do. I'm an artist. And all I gotta do is act naturally. Well, uh, you know, Jerry Nelson 
Uh, so Gonzo is performed by by Dave Gell, Goals, as we said. Uh, but Jerry Nelson had a good good phrase where he said, you know, a lot of people who feel disenfranchised in life find a lot of acceptance in that Muppet world. So the Muppet Show, I think, collected fans who were who felt a lot of these things that these characters felt. And you're so right that Gonzo is such a uniquely little carved out niche within a pretty complicated landscape of personalities, right? Like, can you imagine sort of trying to fit a character in here? Uh, Gonzo, pure id, right? But with, but he's not animal. That's the difference to me. Like you have these two kind of wild and crazy characters. Yeah. But Gonzo's neediness and weirdness, his nose, the way he looks, uh, to me, he's an open door for people who feel like that, who feel like they don't always fit in and who have a show inside them that they're so desperate to share, but no one ever really asks them to share it, either because mm-hmm. of their appearance uh, or because they're easily overlooked, right? He's small. He's he's small and weird looking. And so that to me is part of the genius of the characters that ended up getting airtime or getting creation from these incredible performers is that I think they embody those aspects of things that everyone feels. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, yeah, there's there's points where these uh, these uh, celebrity guest stars aren't even sure whether or not Gonzo is supposed to be a bird. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they don't know who he is. They don't know what he is. Dave Gold says, you know, that the secret to The Muppet Show is that all of these characters embody the degree to which we're all lost and just trying to find our way. Mm-hmm. And so through the device of their attempt to put on a show, you know, which is like the oldest showbiz thing to go back to show within a show, that's what they're trying to do ostensibly in each episode. And it's the ways in which they fail more than the ways that they succeed that gives the show its heart. Because it's things going wrong that fuels every episode for the most part. Certainly in like the backstage stuff, right? Yeah. All right, let's start talking a little bit about the guests, Richard, which I know is going to be a big part of our discussion here. Now, there's a lot of them and, oh wait, I'm sorry. Before we do the guests, Rick, I I wanna have this, this moment for Muppet Women because it bothered me starting when I saw just the title of Frank Oz's documentary, Muppet Guys Talking. And I thought, that's kind of a weird title in 2022. Um, It can't be that it's only men involved in The Muppet Show or Sesame Street or any of these things. The kind of careless application of guys struck me as a little odd note, especially when I start watching the thing. And one of the best people in this little get together is Fran Brill, who I had not heard of before, who's a Muppet performer and exudes a really inviting and welcoming lack of kind of look at me ostentation. You know, like Frank Oz is this very powerful presence and he kind of sucks your attention into him, not through anything he's necessarily doing. Fran Brill is one of those people who's like quietly the really genius, talented performer, but is never going to really toot her own horn about it. So that was the first chink in the armor. And then I'm looking at this book, which admittedly, I guess, came out in, you know, 78 or 79 or something, the Of Muppets and Men book. But again, in the title, we have this Of Muppets and Men. And it really discounts the fact 
that even if I just run off some names, Louise Gold, Fran Brill, Betsy Betos, Karen Prell, Aaron Oscar, Catherine Mullen, Marianne Harms, Nomi Frederick, Callista Hendrickson, who's the costume designer on The Muppet Show, I would argue one of the most very important people in the entire production of The Muppet Show, the costume mm -hmm. designer, yeah. Leslie Ash, Amy Van Gilder, on and on. There's a lot of women involved, both in the creature shop, in the production staff and team, and in the performance of the characters themselves. The set designer, I don't know if you mentioned one of those women you mentioned. One of those women is the set designer, yes. Yeah. So it's weird to me that some of this Muppet stuff, I mean, again, it's less weird in the period book of Muppets and men. I guess I get, I get that sort of overlooking of the female contribution. I get it less in Frank Oz's own documentary, Muppet guys talking when one of those people is not a guy. It just seems kind of weird to me. Well, I won't argue with you. I do think it's some kind of legacy that goes back to the idea that there were these sort of a fraternity of five guys who were the, you know, the core puppeteers. And then that got kind of um, handed into the title of that book that came out in 1981. Yeah, but, so but even maybe then, he was following that trope. But, but even then, Louise Gold is one of the key puppeteers on The Muppet Show. She, it's not just those five guys. She's, she's one of the most important performers on The Muppet Show in season one and going forward. She sings, she does all the female Muppet characters that there are to be done aside from people like Miss Piggy. So she's in that group. Like, even if you said, yeah, these are these five guys, it's just not five guys. It's five guys and a woman. So it's a curious omission for what you would think would be a very uh, aware of those types of issues, even back in the day, because these are all long haired hippies. Rest in peace, Frank Oz's hair, which was gone already by <laughs> season one. But Everyone else looks kind of like a long haired hippie in the production shots that you're looking at. So I just found it kind of a, a curious thing. I would love to ask Frank Oz that question sometime. You know, it's one thing for the making of book, or I think the book was tied in. There was a BBC or some type of probably an ITV or ATV special that is an hour long look at the making of The Muppet Show. And it's a lot of the content seems to me to be mirrored in the book. So maybe the book and the documentary were part of the same thing. But just, I find it kind of jarring, you know, it's not that no women were involved in the making of, but they, I think that they got a little left out in places. Although, again, if you read the Henson biography, a lot of attention is paid to people like Callista Hendrickson, who, if you start looking at the costume design of these characters is unbelievable. And the set design, as you said, incredible. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Well, I'm glad you did, because I agree with you. Votes, okay. for, votes for women. Okay, so great guests. I think... One way to do this is let's start by each giving our top five best guest star episodes. And you'll say your number five and I'll say my number five, and then we will compare notes. Does that seem like a way to go? And then after that, we can talk about some other great or not so great episodic performers. Sounds great. All right, why don't you go first? Or not so I great. My number, you, your number five best number five. Favorite. Now, this is not just your. I, I, let's be clear. We're talking about this. These are your five favorite episodes, and we're just going to reference the episodes by the guest star. Yes. Okay. Number five right. for you. Number five, John Cleese. John Cleese. Okay. And what is it about the John Cleese episodes you particularly enjoyed? What I liked about this episode was John Cleese. Uh, fearlessly willing to be 
a total dick uh, in the middle of uh, what is essential, what is absten- what is arguably, uh, you know, a young person's show. Right. And uh, in fact, John Cleese, when you uh, some of the background on this was that he had a hand in writing some of his own sketches along with the along with Jerry Jewell. And they came up with a concept for this show in which I think it's second season show uh, in which John Cleese would be sort of kidnapped somehow and brought into the show that he wasn't really interested in doing. Mm-hmm. And so for out, throughout the show, he is um, in conflict uh, both uh, on stage and backstage with all of the characters. And it's hilarious. Uh, and it's hilarious because it it really it set the, the tension that's set up between the star and the puppets is just something that you would not anticipate seeing on a variety show. It's not something that you would anticipate uh, a person who is a celebrity allowing themselves to be portrayed in that way. But John Cleese doesn't care. He wants to be funny. And it is genuinely funny throughout most of the episode. Uh, I really enjoyed his his uh, uh, willing willingness willingness to to uh, put himself out there in that way. Well, to be the Ebert to your Siskel, I will say that for me, I expected to love this episode amongst my top five, but I didn't. And it's for the very reason you cite that he he maybe perhaps bravely chose to position his character in the episode in conflict with the Muppets, in conflict with the show, and chose that kind of, I'm going to be, uh, as you said, a dick. He's going to be disgruntled. He's going to be unhappy. And it's that sort of, that, that the tension, it's a tension-filled guest performance. I guess when I watch it, this might be my own long-standing childhood desire for familial stability and everyone to get along. Mm-hmm. That... Uh, I, I didn't like that as much as I sort of thought I was going to like it. And I guess if I look at the episodes that I liked on my list, funny enough, they're all kind of episodes where the guest star is integrated within the Muppet world, but doesn't create chaos within the Muppet world. So that's probably more a me thing. But John Cleese is a famous episode and a lot of people love it. It does have a manic, chaotic, uh, Python-esque energy, which I think a lot of people love and fairly so. My number five episode is Glenda Jackson. And almost for the same reason you're saying, but in a different way, because Glenda Jackson is one of the guest stars who came in and said, you know, they would have these meetings with the guest stars who sometimes had very specific ideas of what they did or didn't want to do. Uh, Glenda Jackson is on my list because she came in and said, you know what you're doing. You, you tell me I'm game for anything. And they worked it out with her, but they created this entire sort of pirate episode with her that she is just all in on great energy amazing singing great comic performing and i I felt like she really came in and added something to this world and was able to marshal it by her performance into these incredible numbers these incredibly staged numbers on ship decks and things of this sort so that was a surprise one for me because you know when you look at all the sort of famous guest episodes you sort of think like oh it's going to be elton john or something else that ends up being kind of disappointing. So I had I had Glenda Jackson as my number five. I don't know if you saw that episode or had any thoughts about her. I did see that episode. For one thing, I think you bring up a really good point, which, uh, which we may or may not have time to get to, is the fact that 
you can go out on the internet and find lists and lists of people's top 10, top 20 shows, whatever. And if you go by those lists, there's a lot of shows in there that the whole episode doesn't necessarily work. Um, you know, there right. may be parts of the episode or whatever. I have to say for this Glenda Jackson episode, I agree with you almost, almost completely mm -hmm. because she has such command of the episode that, uh, she's willing to do something really wild and conceptual i do love this whole sort of uh book of the show which is that she is not glenda jackson she is what is she black glenda or something right. something uncomfortable like that where she she's a pirate who takes over the show and then turns the theater into a ship uh it's funny it's well done I feel like by the time we kind of get to the the last act of the show, which is kind of an extended musical piece and there's yeah. a pirate ship battle and all that, it's a little exhausting for me. Uh, yeah. And I it's I'm you know, I'm more used to uh, a Muppet Show episode where it's a little more episodic. Sure. But I, I do think it's a good episode. It's just not happened to be in my top five. Just again, if I if I have to, you know, if I have to go back and sort of rank these according to what's my favorite, I find that one a little tedious. But I do. I respect your choice. OK, great. What's your number four? My number four, Linda Lavin. This is a surprise to me. You came out of left field. Did this come out of left field for you, too? It did, because when I when I when I after i had watched a ton of these episodes i went back and kind of went through the list of all five seasons and made a longer list of the ones that really stuck with me and then mm -hmm. tried to pare it down mm -hmm. and i have to say i love the linda lavin season four episode i think a lot of it is that she is the perfect example of a of a of a guest a, a celebrity guest coming on this show who uh she she so successfully works with the puppets you really mm -hmm. believe that she is there amongst them she has a much more kind of acting skills than i would have necessarily known to watch for mm -hmm. if you watch this this episode carefully her reactions are great uh she really feels like she's having a good time mm -hmm. uh amongst these puppets like it's she's relating to them in in a successful way in addition to that her musical parts i think they're all she's singing live uh on she her is. musical parts yes. uh which not every which not every singing guest did uh and she feels organic on this show she feels like she's bringing this sort of kind of cheesy show business las vegasy thing to the right place uh i read in one of the books that she uh was one of the she was one of the celebrities who started to watch the show and she loved it and she got waitlisted for two years <laughs> uh and when she but when she comes on this show she brings it she's a great singer she is a great actress she's uh, she's a little corny um but and oh and this is i should also say this is an episode where it, everybody is mistakenly thought that it's kermit's birthday right and so we have a lot of sort of scenes of kermit trying to explain to people that it's not really his birthday and nobody's listening to him and then there's this great big finale with linda lavin 
looking like a drag queen on top of this giant <laughs> cake. Uh, and it's this very sort of Busby uh, Berkeley esque yeah. thing with the the characters going around the sides of the cake. It's put together really well with I don't, what do you call that, Jason? Where it's sort of like the they're using different parts of the frame with different pieces of film. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like a like a laugh in or like a on you know a on screen multi cam sort of approach. Yeah. Anyway, it's good trick photography for uh, you know for um inexpensive television production i totally bought it and i just I, I really i really thoroughly enjoyed this episode maybe in this way that you enjoyed glenda jackson well my four my number four uh best muppet show episode is also linda but it's linda ronstadt um also interestingly for some of the reasons you say a little bit because uh ever since fm the movie i've I'm I'm kind of continually blown away by exposure to peak Linda Ronstadt tech uh, vocal ability is just I, I've never really heard any any voice like that live, and so there's a certain power of that. But her personality also allowed her to be within this Muppet world in such a incredibly unique way, and for me not only are the musical numbers superlative among the best ever recorded on the Muppet show, but the sets, the set in the blue Bayou number at the beginning is astounding. It is unbelievable. Um, and her presence within the set and the way the texture, the, the number of things that are going on with defined characters all up, up and down the frame on the blue Bayou set is incredible. Uh, it has a nice little through story narrative where she is in love with Kermit and Piggy is jealous and they kind of go through those machinations. Um, I just thought Linda Ronstadt had a tremendous amount of personal charm with the Muppets and fit herself in nicely within the universe. And it, it's funny, I'm looking at my list and I'm realizing just how much your, or at least my fractured family childhood is represented in the choices that I make in shows like this <laughs> okay. because every single person on my list I'm looking at it they are all about creating a harmonious and unified family in the uh -huh. episode right so Linda Ronstadt was my uh, number four episode yeah I'll only say a couple things about that one is I have to mention that this episode features um Gonzo's fungus collection which he keeps in a steamer <laughs> trunk <laughs> and number two which is i really do like the music on this episode not all of the bits work necessarily for me but when i was paring down my list this it was uh, a tough cut for you it was tough cut it was it would have been number six if i had if yeah. i was if i was doing my top six episodes i, um, I did enjoy it a lot incredible musical numbers yeah. uh, among the best okay who do you have at number three i have comedian gilda radner at number three this again is a this is a an episode for me which which you could if you were trying to teach somebody what the Muppet Show was if you could pick one episode that illustrated a, an almost perfect episode I would pick this Gilda Radner episode because as something that you and I talked a little bit um, before the show before this show was the opportunity for Gilda Radner to come do the Muppet Show and do things that she wasn't 
that she wasn't doing elsewhere. So she right. comes on the show, she sings operetta, she tap dances. <laughs> She's not particularly great at either of these things, mm -hmm. but that's what's funny about it. Yeah. Um is that she's trying and she has such good repartee with uh, with the puppets as well. And then with the other thing that I love about this episode as a whole, not just the Gilda Radner parts, but if you if you go back and you were to evaluate these shows based on every sketch being actually funny, every sketch in this episode is 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 successful and she uh uh also gets involved with this um uh this storyline about this uh glue this uh, this incredible glue that right. gets invented in the muppet labs and then yeah. there's this the show is gradually starts to fall apart because <laughs> everybody's stuck together and the props are stuck to the right. actors and the and fozzy is stuck to the curtain and it's just in many ways it is an ideal episode uh as far as the format of the show I also love Gilda Radner's performance on the show. She takes herself both seriously and she's funny. And I I really enjoyed it. It's also my number three episode. So you, you said it as well as anyone could. I think that, you know how you, you know, we talked in the past where some of your prep for these podcast appearances includes you showing your husband, Dr. C things that he's never seen before. Yeah. I think that Gilda Radner as a person and a performer, if someone didn't know who she was or had never been exposed to her and you just showed them this episode, they would love her. She exudes warmth and care and is so vulnerable and available mm -hmm. within the construct of this silly construct of a Muppet show. And it's her heart and her humor and her soul that shines through. And not so much the comedy side of it, because for me, I put her on the list because it's a great representative episode for guests coming onto the Muppet Show and, as you said, doing stuff that they're not known for doing. A few performers are brave or foolhardy enough to tackle the blinding complexity of the following musical number. But here she is tempting fate, Miss Gilda Ratner! <laughs> General, I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights of Sarah from Alleluia to Alleluia. Hold it, hold it, maestro, please. You blew it, my child. Never send a girl in to do a carrot's work. If I knew a 12-foot rabbit, you'd really be in trouble. Why don't we try an easy one, hmm? Maestro, please. That was really part of the big appeal that the Muppet Show had for a lot of guest stars was, hey, you want to tap dance and you're Gilda Radner? Let's go for it. Uh, and it's right. the game appreciation for the attempt at doing that and the willingness to do that without being a superstar tap dancing performer that I think engenders a lot of warmth and good feeling. That was one of the things I, I saw in, a, in an interview with the head writer, Jerry Jewell, where he said, this isn't like, uh, this was not like other variety shows. If we brought the person in, we would say to them, what do you want to do? The more outrageous, the better. Right. And good of you to mention Jerry Jewell because very, very important part of the Muppet Show universe. He took over as head writer from the season one head writer who was, I'm not going to say foisted upon Henson, but was put in place because he was much more a variety show in quotes writer. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of variety shows at this time on American television. And uh, what's his name? He was he was uh, he was the comedic partner of Avery Schreiber, who I who I just had a complete like might as well gotten into a a Star Trek transporter to sort of remember <laughs> Avery Schreiber as part yeah. of my television childhood. Burns, uh-huh. Jack Burns, it was. Yeah. Of Burns and Schreiber. So, uh-huh. yeah, Jerry Jewell, really, really important. Okay. Uh, yeah, just one more thing while we're on this topic in regard to Jack Burns and Jerry Jewell. There's those TV commercials that are running right now where, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 the guy who was uh, inspired the George Costanza character on uh, on Seinfeld, Larry David. He has these TV commercials he's doing right now where uh, people are like presenting him with these inventions oh, yeah, in right. time. And he's like, yeah. nah, you know, yeah. somebody shows in the weeds like, nah, with this show on the first season, there was this idea that they would write theme shows, book shows, yeah. that sort of thing. And they would come to Jack Burns and say, well, we want to do a show where there's a story running through the whole show, quite like this thing with the glue and Gilda Radner, mm-hmm. which makes mm-hmm. it such a perfect episode. And Jack Burns in the first season would say, mm, you don't want to do that. You don't yeah. want, you know, just it, it works better if everything's kept as a separate, you know, a separate scene. And, yeah. uh, and it, you know, it took, um, them uh promoting uh, a writer out of their own group in the second season for the episodes to start getting this kind of uh flow and character that they that they did uh, uh beyond the beyond the first season uh there are great episodes in every up ep- in every season Rita Moreno uh-huh. is a great great episode in season one uh but the show has not yet really taken shape and form as it would over the course Okay, number two on your list of the top five greatest Muppet Show episodes is? I picked Miss Carol Burnett as number two. This is kind of in the same category maybe as John Cleese for me, so we may find some disagreement. I was not only just entirely amused by Carol Burnett's performance in this, I was really impressed with who she was in show business at this time. This is around 1979, Mm -hmm. 1980. Uh, For Carol Burnett to show up and say, I'm going to be Carol Burnett, the the famous person who also is a crazy, histrionic, (laughs) demanding Mm -hmm. guest. Uh, And I just loved her uh, willingness to put herself out there as essentially somebody who was not likable for a half hour. You may feel differently. <laughs> I thought it was hysterical. I like this is a show um, where um, the the uh, the theme of the show is that Gonzo is somehow convinced Kermit that they should be putting on a dance marathon throughout yeah. the whole length of the show. And Carol Burnett keeps waiting around for her for her number to come on. Her and every time. Number. Yeah. And every time or no, it's the uh, the uh, Lonely Asparagus. Oh, Lonely Asparagus. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and every time she wants she's about to perform, the Muppets are interrupting her act mm-hmm. and she gets and she's on a a, a slow boil um you know through the course of the half hour and she just gets better and better uh uh and again i was really impressed with her um uh her willingness to not have an ego about who she was on this show by the way that she by the way that she um displayed herself she's really funny and it's good music it's a great Gonzo episode. If you want to hear the Gon, if you're looking for the Gonzo whoosh, there's lots of whooshes <laughs> in this. Uh, it's my second favorite episode and close to my favorite. It's a good episode. I think for the reasons I've said, you know, mom is causing a little chaos in the family. So that didn't really make my list. 
Um, but I do like her version of that a little bit more than I liked John Cleese's version of it, uh, just because I thought she's a much more capable variety performer. So she was able to do a lot of different things. But I, I found the dance marathon thing kind of tiring and representative of season one as sort of a thing to return to that outside of her didn't really have anything else going on for it. So you mean as far as like the one liner jokes? Are yeah, it just okay. was a return to, to that thing I never mm -hmm. liked in season one, which is the the bad jokes in the in the dance partners recurring bits. It's interesting you bring that up because there's a there's a, a there's a part of that book that you and I had both read that of 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 Muppets and Men where all the the it's the writers who say, well, we had that um at the dance thing in the first season and then we kind of started to retire it because we didn't like writing for it. There mm -hmm. wasn't the it it wasn't funny. It was you know it got old and then they totally bring it back in the fifth season. <laughs> Well, you know, you, for a whole show, it, it's a grueling schedule. So they probably, you know, figured they'd find some, some, it, it does eat up a lot of real estate. Yeah. But probably my dislike for that comes from having to see it a lot in the first episode. You know, it's always a thing I remember in, in having rooms where we need to come up with jokes. It's always a temptation to use lame jokes, ironically, mm -hmm. to, to put them in a TV show. And I think what most people rapidly realize is a lame joke is a lame joke. And it doesn't actually do what you intend it to do, no matter how much laugh track you put on it. Mm. So uh, I love Carol Burnett. I think she's a legend and icon of the highest status. I have ultimate appreciation for her as a performer. It's a very, very good episode. I would highly recommend people watch that episode, but it did not make my list. My number two episode, Richard, is Harry Belafonte. This episode to me is on my list because it's so different from every other Muppet Show episode. Uh, Harry Belafonte, of course, just evinces so much humanity, warmth, acceptance, accommodation, uh, and his musical numbers are among my favorite. Uh, I think Linda Ronstadt and the Harry Belafonte episode have the most inventive musical numbers. And Harry Belafonte being Harry Belafonte, having this really symbiotic, appreciative relationship with Jim Henson, they were able to kind of come in and talk about what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. and, and Harry having just done an album of uh, folk, when I say folk songs, it's not like guitar strumming folk songs, it's different regional folk musics from all of the continents in the world. Uh, he had kind of had this idea to do something based in his experiences in Africa. And so they came up with these really inventive masks and Jim Henson being Jim Henson wanted to take great care that the masks were not inappropriate or that they didn't say or, or mean something within the African culture that uh, they weren't meant to be saying in their use in the episode. And indeed, uh, the performance that uh, Harry Belafonte gave in this show of what's the song bring the world together uh, he, uh it's called turn the world around turn the world around he performed that at Jim Henson's funeral uh, because that of all the musical performances on the Muppet show meant the most to Jim Henson do I know who you are see we one another clearly do we know who we are do you know who I am? Do I know who I am? Do you 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 know who
see you know who we are. Do another we wanna do belly, belly, See we want another belly, do we know who we are? So is life a mighty So is life. So is life a mighty So is life. Water make the river, river wash the mountain fire, make the sunlight turn the world around. Heart is love, the river body is the mountain spirit, is the sunlight turn the world around. We are of the spirit, truly of the spirit, only can the spirit turn the world around. We are of the spirit, truly of the spirit, only can the spirit turn the world around. Do you know who I am? And I think it's a really... A uh, beautiful, evocative, spiritual episode that's very different from all the upper, other episodes, and I think that difference is why it kind of made my list as uh, the number two. I think it's one of the most interesting episodes you can look at. Yeah, uh, this is one of those episodes where I really love the performer Harry Belafonte scenes. There's the banana boat song that keeps getting interrupted by Fozzie bringing out the wrong kinds of uh, fruit. <laughs> um there's yes. the there's the epic drum battle between Harry Belly Harry Belafonte and Animal I that think is, is great. that's a great scene. I do love the last number um with the African mask. I just I just got a warm fuzzy glow and again going back to what I've been saying over and over on my list here a lot of this is about uh I guess what I reacted to both as a child and now. Now our number 1 episode is for you Peter Sellers. Same for me. Yeah. The single best episode and the single best guest star. Yeah. Uh, but for me, not for the reasons I might have presupposed prior to rewatching it for the first time since probably seeing it in childhood. Um, I sort of thought the thing that I would love it for was Peter Sellers' antic comedic genius. But for me, that wasn't what I plugged into. What I plugged into was Peter Sellers kind of being willing to put a little of that on the shelf and be present within these Muppet scenarios so wholly and convincingly. Yeah. And I loved the use of the thing that was always said of Peter Sellers that he would say of himself, and they use it in the episode, that there is no him, right? He's right. the there's characters. A, yeah, there's a couple of sources that try to argue that this that – this, um, sort of famous line from Peter Sellers saying there is no him that it originated on this episode. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not maybe. sure whether I agree with that <laughs> or not. I don't know whether that's true or not, I should say. The way he is, and again, it's something akin to the Glenda Jackson and Linda Ronstadt numbers, which is the these musical numbers are in full-throated glee. Every character surrounding Sellers, surrounding Linda, surrounding Glenda they're they're all in this scene together and i think i loved that peter sellers didn't necessarily always have to be the first thing your eye went to but he's always the most interesting thing my eye went to yeah uh and he's doing um you know a sort of characters that he had played in the mm -hmm. past uh particularly characters that he was sort of reviving from the movie dr Strangelove. Mm -hmm. uh, but i don't think you have to know what that movie is or what any of these characters are to find it funny yeah i mean he's just at home in the play of the muppet show yeah and, and i think that's performers who could do that are the ones who came across the best 
funny enough, when you, you mentioned the lists of what people write as like all of the great episodes, there's a lot of things that were supposed to be great that I did not like at all that I sort of just thought didn't work per se. Can you give an example of that? Well, um, every list of the greatest episodes includes Elton John. Mm -hmm. I found Elton John to be uh, almost an unwatchable episode for me because uh, number one, he's not singing live in any of his musical numbers. Yeah. And so lip syncing with the Muppets is already a remove too far for me. I don't think any of my favorite performances involve that, but Elton, I just didn't do it for me. Although a lot of people mention that episode as, you know, one of the greatest episodes. So that one, uh, Spike Milligan gets mentioned a lot, you know, kind of a classic, iconic, brilliant British comedian. Um, it's one of the first episodes that has a disclaimer from Disney uh, noting that the ethnic humor is inappropriate and dated, which it is. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Jim Henson talks specifically about that Harry Belafonte episode uh, and his desire to have a chance to sort of have, uh, you know, this third world music mm -hmm. uh, on an episode to bring in the Harry Belafonte's, uh, you know, one world aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I guess Henson was also very involved with the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. And it isn't more than a couple weeks after that great Harry Belafonte episode that he has that Spike Milligan episode, <laughs> which is supposed to be something about, you know, it's kind of it's a it's a small world type of mm -hmm. uh, of episode. It's the it's like well, international I think they do. Day. It's a small world at the end, don't they? Yeah, it's supposed to be International Day where, you know, uh, you know, uh, a hundred nationalities are represented. And it's probably the most racist <laughs> uh, 26 minutes in the in the. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of episodes that have the have a Disney disclaimer at the front of them. Now, I will go on record and say I think that's the right way to handle this type of stuff. Yeah, I don't think just erasing the episode from history and pretending it never existed is the way to go. Yeah, um, I think that their disclaimer is actually really well written and it appropriately puts the show uh, in the context. And it says, you know, this was wrong then and it's wrong now. Yeah. And and I think that's right. But it, it just there, there are some episodes like that that kind of everyone fawns over um, that are always like if you're a fan of that person, you know, uh, I love Alice Cooper. Don't get me wrong. You know, Alice Cooper turns in a good episode. Uh, but again, someone doing a character doing what's essentially a character on a show with people doing characters is it, it creates almost a, a layer too far gone. All right, you and I really uh, see to eye, eye to eye on a lot of these uh, um, overrated episodes, I think. <laughs> it's not that I think that Alice Cooper is bad in his episode no, or bad. that the writing is bad. To me, that episode, it's just not the Muppet show. It's so, it's a different yeah, show. It it's it's yeah. just the, the whole sort of horror and gore thing. I don't know. I'm really uncomfortable with it. Whereas if I saw Alice Cooper on something else, I might like him better, but I didn't like him here. Yeah. Um, what about some other uh, episodes that we liked? I mean, I mentioned Rita Moreno. That is a great season one episode. Um, she uh -huh. actually won, I believe she famously is in EGOT. She has uh -huh. an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, and probably several of those. I believe this is the E from her EGOT, the first one. Well, it was her first Emmy. Don't forget that she won the very next year for uh, for uh, Rockford Files. Oh, true. Great. Yeah. 
great, I believe, two episode appearance on the Rockford Files. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great episode. Uh, <laughs> I liked Paul Williams' episode, although he seems drunk. And as and when I looked into <laughs> it, I think he's still drinking uh -huh. at the time. So uh -huh. I, I, it's. It's more of an archival interest for me than <laughs> same for me with Debbie Harry that uh, I like Debbie Harry. She's she's uh, she's funny and she's beautiful, but I think she's high through the whole thing. I don't know. If she's high. I think, you know, Debbie Harry always had that kind of persona. I don't know. Maybe There's something about her eyes in that episode. You, you she said that right. you said that and I went and watched it and I, yeah. I didn't think she was any different than any other time. I okay. think the thing with Deborah Harry has always been, you know, Deborah Harry is a uh, fascinating front person for a rock band and is obviously incredibly beautiful, but not that interesting a person to hear talk. So for me, maybe that just yeah. didn't work. Shout yeah. out to my one of my current still comedic favorites on Twitter, Ruth Buzzy, who is still hilariously funny in 2022. Love her. Her, her episode is really good. Contains a lot of that same antic, great old school showbiz timing and performing. I really mm -hmm. loved her. She was funny. Another um, one, another one I'll mention. It goes in this category of people who show up and they just have some 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 uh, natural mm -hmm. timing and comfort uh, in acting with puppets. You know, is mm -hmm. uh, opera singer Beverly Sills. I don't know if you watched this one, but she's so yeah. good. She is good. Uh, she famously balances a spoon on her nose. That's yeah. why the episode got a lot of attention because that was one of those indications of kind of like people doing things they're not known for doing. Yeah. Uh, I thought Roger Moore was also a, a particularly good example of what you're talking about. Uh, he was very at home <laughs> with the Muppets. Uh, and I think that was a good one. John Denver is a good one. George Burns, you know, there's, I, I almost put one of these people like George Burns on my list because a big part of the guests over all five seasons is this type of old school, almost vaudevillian showbiz performer. Yeah. Innumerable examples of which George Burns is obviously the par excellence example. Mm -hmm. um, and they all generally fit really well in because it's just hilarious. I'm watching the George Burns episode. It's like for George Burns, you know, he's been in showbiz a hundred years at this point. He, it's just another night working. If he's working with puppets, <laughs> he's working with puppets. If right. he's working with Gracie the next night in Vegas, that's what he's doing. He is not, he has no qualms. He has no adjustments to make to his thing. It works because it's a part of the Muppet Show ethos and Jim Henson's musical ethos features a lot of these uh, Tin Pan Alley songbook performances, songs that you kind of got to look up and realize that they were written in 1918 or 1920, that they're even, not even standards per se, as much as they are kind of artifacts from a different time in American music, but that really work within the construct of the Muppet Show. Yeah. If you are stoned, you might want to watch the Mum and Shants episode, mm. uh, or if you were stoned throughout the seventies and the eighties, because that will bring you back. Yeah, everybody, everybody knows the Mum and Shants, but they only know them from this episode. Well, no, <laughs> I would say I, if you grew up in the tri-state area, you only know Mum and Shants through their tele telecharge uh, ads for their Broadway show. Everybody loves Mum and Chance. Mum and Chance is in its second smash year on Broadway. Isn't it about time you can say, I saw Mum and Chance? Mum and Chance is at the Bijou Theater, 45th Street West of Broadway. For ticket information and reservations, Phone 
<laughs> okay. Which was like one of those things that was on WPIX a hundred million times when you go uh -huh. to the tri-state area. So that's, okay. how, that's how we tri-staters knew it. You guys out there in the sticks in Colorado, you probably didn't get that type of culture. Right. We only knew the the thing about the, uh, the, the guy in the black suit with the roll of toilet paper on his face from exactly this, from this episode. Well, for us growing up, it was mum and chance and it was take human bites from Gemini. <laughs> I don't know. Featuring a young Danny Aiello. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You don't okay. know that? All right, I'll put that in. You'll hear it when you hear it. You'll know what it is. I'm invited to my son's 21st birthday party. Good food, good people. Our neighbor, Bonnie. Am I weird? Nah. A genius, son, Hirsch. Take human bites. My honey, Lucille. I'm not hungry. I'll just pick. My son's friend from Harvard and his lovely honey, sister. Honey, you. Happy birthday. And a guest of honor, my Ivy League son. It's going to be some party. Gemini on Broadway at the Little Theater. It's a uh, Steve Martin is a great episode. Another great use of someone's current act in that he's doing very much what he was among the most gigantic of comedy superstars at the time. That's a brilliant For, concept episode. Yeah, it's it, it somehow works, even though he's kind of imposing a thing on the Muppet Show. Uh, but because of maybe his persona or the persona of that kind of character, it works even though he's not really with them, right? He's he's sort of in his own sort of diluted showbiz mind uh, in terms of what he's doing as his performance. But I, it's a really good episode. Uh, any other episodes you particularly loved? Um, we talked about, uh, we had, I, I'm really impressed that you and I, we don't usually see it eye to eye on everything, but it's interesting that we've, that we've coalesced around what are the best episodes. We're mostly in agreement, even if our, our top fives don't necessarily, if they're not exact and also episodes that uh, are not as good as uh, they're for some reason remembered to be, we tend to fall in line on, uh, on that as well. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. I did love, love the, the, the Loretta Lynn episode. It's a that great concept a great episode. episode. Uh, I agree with you that sometimes these episodes, which are sort of fall into the sort of a, the hork of a hokey corn pone humor, uh, maybe some of that stuff should have uh, uh, been saved for uh, Hee Haw or something else, which was going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, Loretta Lynn, the John Denver. Sometimes uh, I think that there's another place for this type of music and this type of humor, but I do really like the Loretta Lynn episode as a concept. It's the it's the episode where for some reason the they don't the the theater is being fumigated and they have to. Uh, run the whole show at a train station. Yeah, it kind of works. It brings some different and cool mm -hmm. vibes. It also kind of gets into what I think is a, as like I said, a strength of the developing use of sets that always were paid incredible attention to. It's also interesting to note some of the could have been's uh, alternative casting, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. Mostly so engineer Matt can cut in our signature alternative casting soundbite. But, um, you know, I didn't notice, I texted this to you, I didn't notice until I read it in a book uh, that there are no repeat guests across five seasons. And I don't know if that's unique among variety shows of the era, but it was a thing that they kind of decided to do early on, uh, which is really unique, isn't it? I don't know. It strikes me as really weird that that's the case. Um, and it kind of works. I wonder, 
you know, had it been on for 10 years, could you have gotten away with that? But yeah, maybe not. But it's interesting because when we're talking about this 40 years later, we're talking about these individual episodes, the Carol Burnett, the Elton John. If they had been mm -hmm. on multiple True. episodes, then these then these episodes wouldn't have been unique. So there's some great foresight in saying, well, we're going to make one episode and it's either with this person and it's either going to work or it's not. And you know what? Talk yeah. about having the stakes. I mean, if you're a guest star, especially after season one, and you kind of know what this thing is, uh, you need your episode to be good. Uh, and if and it, it's a fascinating crucible of show business, which I think why I gravitate towards so much is that uh, when the cameras are on, you've got to deliver it. And the way that the people that are great in the show are great is this ability to just be with the Muppets as if they're real, right? And I think all yeah. the people that really respond best are the ones who don't have a hard time doing that. I think it would have been amazing. I can't believe that particularly in this era, uh, we didn't get a Beatle on the Muppet show. Apparently John Lennon was rumored to watch the show with young child Sean Lennon at the time. Yeah. He would have been, I think, a pretty fascinating and maybe perfect Muppet Show guest, uh, as would Paul and certainly Ringo. Ringo, I mean, to me, stands out as the guy who would have <laughs> would have been the maybe not the biggest uh, get as far as a Beatle is concerned, but as far as a guy who you would expect would come on the show and be brilliant. I would I would I would predict that Ringo would be great. I, I would bet that I would say Ringo. I think John would be very interesting, but I'm not sure. I don't know. He, John would either be one of the best episodes or just an interesting, possibly failed experiment. But I agree yeah, with you, I mean, Ringo would fit. Yeah, I mean, one of the things too is that you find when you know if you if you go on the Disney uh, Plus app and you look at you know the all these episodes, 120 or whatever you have available, you get so excited because you're like, oh, I want to see this person, I want to see this person, and a lot of times you plug into them because it's somebody that you remember uh, yeah. that you really loved, and they don't necessarily deliver, or maybe the show didn't mm -hmm. didn't um, make good use of them. I mean, I don't know if you watch Don Knotts. <laughs> uh, he's one of my favorite performers of all time. And they didn't, for some reason, they couldn't figure out what to do with them. He's not, it's not a good episode. Wait, Don Knotts is one of your favorite performers of all time. Absolutely. Don Knotts. He's <laughs> wow, in the top five or statement. six. That's a sure. strong, that's a strong statement. Uh, I put Don as far as great, greatest performers of mm -hmm. all TV performers of all time. I put him right in between Linda Lavin and Gonzo. Is it the Mr. Roper that puts him over the top for you? Uh, no, it's more uh, that uh, my uh, uh, <laughs> my admiration and appreciation for Barney Fife. I see. Okay. It's more a Barney Fife thing. Yeah. Uh, David Bowie would have been an amazing guest. Sure. On The Muppet Show. Uh, and The Carpenters, I would thought, would have been amazing. Or Captain and Tennille, if you want to go a little bit more down market than The Carpenters. Surprised that Captain and Tennille weren't on this show. They were on everything. They're the, on everything in, else. Yeah. Maybe they just maybe it, over to England. I don't well, know. maybe also that some of these people were busy with their own variety shows at the end. Like uh, That's yeah. probably true. You're right. I'm not sure. Like uh, we, you and I both watched uh, um, the uh, Married Mime Act uh, episode of that's Shields a good episode. and Yarnell. They that's had their episode. own they had their own short live show on network TV too, yeah. Shields and Yarnell. I don't know if it happened before or after this. That's a good episode. I, I kind of enjoyed that. Uh, but again, mostly just being like, oh, right, like Shields and Yarnell. I, I, I think I texted you that I, if you look at their Wikipedia page, they did 400 TV appearances. <laughs> so they were on everything. Um, 
but yeah, I just guess in closing, I think this is such a, a wonderful show to have existed and to have accomplished what it did. It's still really rewarding to watch. Uh, as I was doing research and I had episodes on, you know, my 10 year old daughter would sort of stop and just be like, what is that? Like just what was going on on screen appealed to her anarchic sense of kind of chaos and and jumbling up things that just look and sound strange and weird. Uh, so it obviously still works and really, really worth revisiting and getting on Disney Plus and checking out a few of these episodes that Rick and I mentioned and uh, finding out which ones you love yourself. Okay. I'm going to give you one trivia question before we go. Okay. In regard to the Electric Mayhem, yes. which is the uh, the uh, house rock band, and they're also in the orchestra at the right. uh, beginning and end of the show. Um, can you name... Uh, of the members of the Electric Mayhem, which real live rock stars inspired the characters of the Electric Mayhem? Well, I know that Dr. John inspired Dr. Teeth. That's right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it was rumored uh, that Keith Moon was the inspiration for Animal. I don't know Correct. if that's true. Yeah. Uh, the others, the sax man, I don't know of any real world's antecedent <clears throat> for him. Um, I'm not sure of the others. Uh, Janice. Janice, yeah. You know who that is? Is that is that Twiggy or Janice No, she's Ian supposed to be Janice Joplin. Oh, Janice Joplin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Floyd Pepper, I want to give a shout out to. And also, by the way, musical numbers featuring the band are mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And among my most favorite examples of the puppetry amazingness that goes on in The Muppet Show, because uh, obviously, you know, on one hand, your brain knows that they're not playing the song. Mm -hmm. Yet, the way they're moving, you'd be forgiven for thinking they were. It is so perfectly manipulated by the puppeteers. And Jerry Nelson, who's really carrying most songs that are sung, because Floyd Pepper is kind of your lead singer, uh -huh. he's got a phenomenal uh, ability to use his voice. And also, shout out to the house band basically at atv at the studios there's all these like legendary sort of british session guys who could just play anything and yeah. all of the musical numbers uh that you hear in the show uh including many of the ones that feature the guest stars you know were all recorded by the band with the performers ahead of time for timing purposes and then while they would perform live and certainly the guest stars mostly performed live although it is kind of jarring when you see some that didn't. Uh, all of that stuff was kind of recorded by this just kick-ass, tight little combo yeah. that was represented. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I just want to make one comment to kind of go along with that, which is, uh, you know, if you are a musician of any kind, it's really fun to watch um, either Dr. Teeth or Rolf the Dog when they're playing the <laughs> piano or the keyboards. Oh, very good. Because... I know it's recorded music, but they've got two puppeteers in there. They got one person working the head mm -hmm. and the other person working the the uh, the second uh, hand of the puppet. And the person they're not necessarily playing the music, but their hand is in the right place. And I seriously respect that. Same thing with Animal and the drums. When you watch Animal on the drums, he's hitting the right drums or the right cymbal or the right hi hat or whatever. Um, somebody's paying attention to what the puppet is doing in regard to the instrument. And when I when I noticed that this time, I was blown away with the attention to detail. It, it will blow your mind. I mean, I, I agree with you. Check it out if you're a musician. Uh, just, just one of the many 
you know, myriad pleasures that await you if you dive into The Muppet Show. So Rick, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, I can't wait to figure out what we'll do next. And I'm excited to hear this episode myself on the other end of this recording. So thank you as ever for all of your time, effort, and preparation, and for joining me once again on the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Okay. See you next time. <laughs> but is that your new catchphrase? No, I was just trying to maybe think of what uh, Kermit would say at the oh, end. Oh, I see. Of, okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, they say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show? <laughs> <laughs>